Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday, August the 1st, 2023. It is currently 10.54 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, sometimes I decide that we're going to start working on something, and as we're working on it, something, what I, 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 maybe, maybe this is a little too much hyperbole, but something really awesome happens. Something really cool happens. Something, I don't want to call it magical, but something really awesome happens, at least in my mind, because I, I decide, okay, we're going to cover this. We're going to do this. And sometimes in the midst of that, something really kind of just organically appears or shows up or happens that kind of, I think is really cool. And then we can kind of go pursue that. I love that in podcasting, at least for me, that, that every day is kind of an adventure. There's this mysterious nature to it that you, that some people have it all mapped out. Like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cover this. These are the five episodes we're going to do. We're going to do this in the next, you know, four weeks. They're very, it's very strict. It's very, it's, there's a regiment to it. There, it's, it's, it's regulated. It's, it's, it's mapped out. It's planned where I tend to not do that. I tend to be like, well, let's do this. And then sometimes we jump into it and then I feel like, man, this was kind of a bad idea. And it just kind of, I feel like sometimes it kind of doesn't really work. It doesn't really, whatever I was thinking on my mind, I'm not ever able to produce it on the air. And then there's a lot of times we're doing something and I'm really happy with it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Ooh, look at that. And then all of a sudden we have this kind of new thing and maybe we'll start pursuing that in other episodes. So there's all these twists and turns. It's not, it's not. It's, it's, it's just not really mapped out and planned. There's a very much a kind of an organic feel to it that we kind of, the podcast kind of just takes us on our, our, on its own journey. Sometimes it's a journey into something super interesting. Sometimes it's a journey into, well, that didn't work out very well, but it's very real, very raw, very, I, I I think a little bit more free. Maybe maybe those are the words I'm using. Maybe I, I don't have the words perfect, but um, I, I I think you you get the idea. I think if you've been listening to us a long time, you do realize that there's a lot of twists and turns, and you never wear, know where we're going to go. Well, obviously, you know, if you're listening to this series on law and gospel, you know we started this series in October of 2022. And this series has had a lot of twists and turns, ups and downs, and there's been lots of good that we've done, uh, you know, in this series. You obviously know I felt like that at some point. I jumped the shark, lost the plot, and then I thought, well, do I even continue? And then I'm like, okay, well, let's try this again. And then, well, we're kind of doing a redo and we're utilizing uh, the, the radio program slash podcast issues ETC because they're doing a proper distinction of law and gospel series using the exact same book we were using in our series. So it was just like a match made, you know, a, a perfect match, a match made in heaven that we could bring what I'm trying to do with what they're trying to do. And they could, in a sense, get us restarted, help us redo what we've already done to inform to help. And in some ways in my mind, you know, we're not really going to 
in a, in a sense, break new ground. We're not really going to do anything. It's going to be a lot of review, a lot of reminder, a lot of maybe repetition. I mean, I've already had people greatly criticize this series as being too repetitive. One of the major criticisms is, we get it. You've said the same thing a thousand times. I'm not going to keep, li-. in fact, someone just told me, I'm not going to keep listening to it because it's too repetitive. And I understand. Um, on some ways, um, I, I, I feel bad that I, it has been re- re- too repetitive. But in other ways, I've clearly seen, clearly it wasn't repetitive enough because people don't remember. So it's had its own twists and turns. But I wasn't quite prepared for the last broadcast. Now, maybe in your mind, you're like, you've already covered this. You've talked about it. But it just hit me in a completely different way. So here's what I want to do. Before we go back to the audio for Issues ETC, we've just got a very short segment, maybe 12 minutes long, 11 minutes long to try to review. I don't even know which direction they're going to go, but a scripture was mentioned briefly. I think it was a quote from Luther where this scripture was referenced. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The only people who are getting into heaven are not those who say, Lord, Lord. It's those who actually do the will of the Father. If you don't do the will of the Father, you don't get into heaven. Now, what do we do with this verse? Now, I, I, I personally believe at this moment in time, I may change my mind that of all the things we've done in 90 plus hours of study on law and gospel, this verse may become the go-to verse to really kind of determine the type of church you are attending, the type of gospel you are either, the type of, you can really, it's really going to become the test to know the kind of gospel you're getting. Are you getting pure gospel? Are you getting a gospel that is corrupted, that is infected with law? I I really do believe this because if you have this Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, you should just ask people in your church, okay, the only people who get into heaven are those who do the will of my father. What What is this will that I must do in order to know that I'm going to heaven or in order to get to heaven? What must I, what, what is this will that I must do? I think that's the question you should, you should be asking every Christian, you know, that today you should be, I'm telling you, call your pastor today, email him and say, Hey, not trying to bother you. Just got a quick question. Are you familiar with Matthew 7, uh, 21? Most likely he's going to immediately go very familiar. You're like, okay, well, it says those who say, Lord, Lord are not going to get into heaven, but those who do the will of the father, what is this will that I must do in order to be saved? Now, he may say, no, 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 you don't have to do it in order to be saved, but you have to do it in order to prove that you're saved. Now, of course, you know, which means you have to do it in order to be saved. So you can play that little semantics game, but you know exactly what 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 is going on here. And now, if they say that, if they say, well, if they if they're like, you know, this is something you have to do in order to be saved. If they say something like this, all right, well, okay, 
It doesn't, you don't do it to be saved, but you do it to prove that you're saved. Just remember, in a roundabout way, they're still saying you have to do it in order to be saved. You, they're just playing kind of a semantics game. So then you ask, well, then what must I do? And if they say, well, you have to obey God. Your obedience will determine. If you just say, Lord, Lord, you don't get in. It's You know you are going to get in based off what you do. And you say, okay, well then how much of God's will must I do in order to know that I'm be saved? Well, you're not going to do it perfectly. All right. So, so then, and you may just want to ask a few questions. Don't do it in a snarky way, but I think it's very, and I, I think this is being very fair. So what do you, what, I got to do the will. How much? Well, I mean, it's just that you're trying to do the will. So trying to do the will is, sufficient because it says not everyone that saith unto me lord lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will now you're saying that i should translate that as long as i'm trying to do the will now how much trying must i be and i would ask some very specific questions because i mean this literally deals with the gospel if the gospel at your church is all right ladies and gentlemen boys and girls it's not those of you saying, Lord, Lord, that's going to get into heaven. It's those of you in this church who are doing the will of the Father. That's what proves that you're saved. Now, that sounds like, okay, well, they're not saying it's by works. But of course, just think about it. If you don't do it, then you're not saved. So clearly you have to do it. All right. So then you want to know then if they're saying that. I'm telling you, they're injecting law into the gospel. The gospel of your church is corrupted. The gospel of your church is poison. So then you have to then, so then you need clear clarification. And this is not being, this is not being difficult. This is not being, you know, just a troublemaker. Now, I'm not saying you do this in front of people, but in private, you say, okay, well, pastor, I just honestly need to know how, what do you mean by that? Like, how much effort must, how, how can I ever know that if I'm truly saved, if my salvation is somehow proven or determined by how much of God's will I'm accomplishing or how much effort I'm putting in to accomplishing his will? Because the text says I have to do it. And when God says you have to do his will in order to be saved, you would think that would mean absolute perfection. And if you say it's less than perfection, it's only trying, well, then you have to then give me some kind of measurement of what that trying looks like. Is it 50% effort, 60% effort? And is it only effort or is it actually succeeding? If I'm trying to do God's will, but I keep falling short of God's will, is the trying sufficient to prove that I'm saved? Or is it the actual accomplishing of the will? Because the text doesn't even say anything about trying. It says doing. So which is, I think it's, I think it's important. You've only got a couple of options with this text. This is how you can read it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my father, which is in heaven. Therefore, salvation is based upon works. You're, you're saved by what you do, not just simply by what you believe. Now, immediately, 99% of you will be like, that's not true. And they will reject it. And I can understand everyone should reject it because that's a works-based salvation when we're supposed to be saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone. A second way of approaching the text, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my father. You don't get saved by doing, but you prove that you're saved by your doing. So if you don't have the doing, then you were never saved. Now, Again, to me, that's just playing games because just follow the circle. 
okay, I don't get saved by doing. I prove that I'm saved by doing. So if I don't do, then I'm not saved. I still have to do in order to be saved. And it still comes back to your assurance is based off what you're doing, not on what Christ did. That's that's just poison. A third option. Right? So the first option is just pure works on the front side. The other option is it works on the back side, but it still works. But okay, and that makes you feel better. The third option is not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The doing of the will here is believing in Christ. God's will, if you want to be saved, it's not just saying, Lord, Lord, but you are believing in Christ. If you are trusting and believing in him and you're trusting in him, faith alone, and that the will here is simply believing. But you would think the Lord, Lord would be... I don't, does that work? Maybe it does. Maybe it does. That the will here is simply believing. Fourth option is it's absolutely true. The only person who's going to get into heaven are those who do the will of the Father. This is a law passage and law demands perfection. And what you should say is then, then no one will be saved. But someone did do the will of the Father and they did the will of the Father perfectly. And his name was Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed all the law. And in by faith alone, his obedience to the will of God is now imputed to you. And so you can say, yes, not just those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of the Father will be saved. And Jesus did the will of the Father on my behalf. The law condemns and makes you run to Christ. Now, how does your church answer the Matthew 7.21 question? Matthew 7.21, if you think about it, it's like a detector, right? And you put up Matthew 7.21 to the gospel of your church, and it's either going to go, ding, pure gospel, ding, you're safe, or it's going to go, Poison, 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 poison. Red alert, red alert. This is poison. Now, I, I, I mentioned this. I mentioned this in the last episode, but this is one of those situations where now I'm like, we, we gotta spend, we've gotta spend a lot of time on Matthew 7.21. So to please today, contact your pastor. Ask your Christian friends and just tell me, you don't, I don't want to know the name of the church. I don't want to know the name of the pastor, right? Keep that private, but just say, we got the, uh, the alarm went off. It was a pure works-based answer. Ask your Christian friends. I guarantee you, you're going to be, and my, this is my prediction. You, you should be horrified by how much of the gospel has been infected with the law. And it's going to be law, 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 law. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we're doing this series. Now, they mentioned it in the last segment. Now, They're going to continue on. We're going to go back to the audio from Issues ETC. Remember, please subscribe to the Issues ETC podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, type in Issues ETC. Subscribe. You can go through and look for all of their episodes on law and gospel. 
Go listen to them in their entirety where you don't have me interrupting and breaking these down into such small segments. And you can then compare, you can take notes on what they have to say. You can take notes on my review and critique. Some of this we agree, some of this we disagree, but we are definitely, I'm definitely 100% on the same page as they are. We need the proper distinction between law and gospel. Because when you obliterate law and gospel, when you obliterate law and gospel, you end up with a you end up with law masquerading as gospel. Someone uh, messaged me and said, uh, I think it was on uh, YouTube, that when you obliterate the proper distinction between law and gospel, you end up with lordship salvation. But I think lordship salvation is a is a law is the law masquerading as a gospel. All right. Are you ready to finish this up? It's a very short segment. Very short. It's only like 12 minutes, if that. Maybe even 11 minutes. So this is going to go fast. Um, oh, we're in thesis number three. Remember, we're using the book, God's No and God's Yes, the proper distinction between law and gospel. Thesis number three reads like this. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and theologians in particular. It is taught by the Holy Spirit uh, in the school of experience. This is the most, this is the highest art to rightly distinguish between law and gospel. And I think you know if someone has mastered that highest art and how they handle Matthew 7, 21. All right. I'm, I'm hoping this generates a lot more uh, discussion. So far, um, it hasn't, but we'll, we'll see. All right. Let's, let's jump into this. All right. Okay, so let's finish this. All right, here we go. Issues ETC, the last segment. Welcome back. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's part three of our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. As you said, he skipped a Reformation and went on to the next Friday for an evening lecture. And here he wants to contrast human wisdom with divine wisdom, but he does so by citing a couple examples, beginning with the Clement of Alexandria and then a early Reformation theologian, Osiander, and saying that they they were really good, but they weren't always so great at distinguishing long gospel. Yeah. Now, before we actually get to that, I want to just back up for one more thing. One more divergence, if I can, from from him, because it ties so beautifully to everything you just heard, and it leads into what we're going to consider now. And that is, if you remember this scene in the, the novels, the, the Hammer of God by Bouillerts, the semi-drunk pastor is being called to minister to a, a dying man. He doesn't have the first clue what he needs to do or what he say. The man is in despair over his sin. And the pastor is just like assuring him, but God is good. And he's like, yeah, I know. Yeah, he's good. And I am evil. That's the problem. The, the pastor is clueless. But along comes a very faithful laywoman, Katarina. And Katarina had been well-schooled by a pastor who totally got the distinction between law and gospel and who taught her the joys of the atonement. So listen to some of the dialogue between these two and hear it in light of what we were just talking about. The, the, the man says, who's dying? He says, I'm a sinner, a great sinner. And she says, yes, you are, but Jesus is a greater savior. But my heart's not clean. I don't have a new spirit. And she says, Jesus did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Yes, but it reads to repentance. It's repentance that I lack. 
And she goes, no, it's not. It's not repentance that you lack. It's faith you lack. What should I then believe? You must believe this living word of God. His faith is counted for righteousness. But why then have I not received a clean heart? Well, if you'd received a clean heart and for that reason been able to earn your salvation, to what end then would you need a savior? This conversation goes on. She says, you don't lack repentance, Johannes, but faith. You've walked the way of repentance for 30 years and still not attained to it. Johannes, the woman said almost sternly, answer me this question. Do you really want your heart to be clean? Yes, Katerina, God knows I do want that. Then your repentance is as true as it can be in a corrupt child of Adam in this world. Your danger is not that you lack repentance, but that you've been drifting away from faith. What am I supposed to believe? You must believe. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Up to this day, you believed in works and looked only at your own heart. You saw only sin and wretchedness because God anointed your eyes with the salve of his spirit to see the truth. Do you have sin in your heart, Johannes? Yes, he answered timidly. Much sin, altogether too much. Just that should make it clear to you that God has not forsaken you, said the woman firmly. Only he can see his sin who has the Holy Spirit. Do you mean to say, Katerina, that it would be a work of God that my heart is so unclean? Not that your heart is unclean. That is the work of sin. But that you see it, that is the work of God. But why haven't I received a clean heart? That you might learn to love Jesus, said the woman as calmly as before. It's a beautiful passage. When she's done and he's finally, you know, he keeps. That's a powerful statement. Why haven't I received a clean heart so that you will learn to love Jesus? Our sin should make us learn to love Jesus because it's the only, he's the only solution. The only solution is him and his finished work. Where so much of Christianity today, the solution is supposedly, you now can do it. You now can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Now we try to, we pay lip service saying, well, you can do it because God will do it through you. But the point is, it's always about what you can do. You can do. You can do. Even though no one can admit how much we don't do it and how far we fall short. Nobody wants to acknowledge how messed up the church is. Nobody wants to acknowledge how much of a sinner they are. They only want to talk about, you're told right from your, when you become a Christian, you're told now to tell everyone how much you've changed, how much you've been transformed. God did this. I used to do this. Now I don't. I used to do this. And and we say that. But then you look at that person's life and it's still, their sin is still going to be there over and over and over. So much, it's still going to be there. So they have to live a lie. They can't be open and honest. And they really, what they ultimately start to love is not Jesus. They love the fact that they are supposedly so much different and so much better than they were. But the reality is, if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you'll know the sinful heart that's still in you. You'll know the sin you still commit. You'll know the sin you still desire. And that should make you love Jesus more. Let's continue. He's asking for passage after passage to sort of set his heart at ease. And once he finally does say, okay, I do believe this, then they go and call the pastor and say, would you please use the keys and absolve him of his sin? And the pastor who has been so helpless comes in and he actually does absolve him and he goes back home. He was a curate, so he's uh, like we would have our vicars in training. 
And he says to the pastor, I'm done with everything else. I really want to know how to be able to minister to souls. You see, he saw the law, gospel, how hard it is to distinguish them in times of despair, and he really wanted to learn how to do that. Now, moving into the seventh lecture where he's still picking up the same thought on the same thesis, he does say that if you mess this up, you don't do a lot of good for the church. And of all things, he actually says Chrysostom was you know, a great scholar, excellent orator, the golden mouth. And he says, but he didn't accomplish much in the long run, poor man, because he mingled the law and gospel together so frequently. And I just wanted to scream when I read that the first time I read it, because I was like, Dr. Walter, how much Chrysostom have you read that you would say that? It's true that Chrysostom at times will do that as any theologian ends up doing sooner or later. I mean, our fallen human reason pushes us in that direction. But Chrysostom is also one of the clearest teachers of the Word of God in that time, and he has a beautiful ability to let the text stand as it stands without trying to bend it to other texts. That's in itself the essence of being able to rightly distinguish the law and the gospel. It's to know when to pick up which text to comfort a troubled heart that is what C.F.W. Walter is pressing his students to know how to do here. I think Chrysostom actually is a stunning example of it. I just think Walter got that one wrong. What this demonstrates is even C.F.W. Walther, judging Chrysostom, that it's very difficult when you start understanding the proper distinction of law and gospel, like knowing exactly when, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're giving me all law. And sometimes we we want both. Just remember, I, I Chrysostom, I, I kind of agree with the approach. You let the text stand. So if I'm preaching a text that's law, preach it as law. Don't don't bend it. You don't have to immediately try to. And I know even these these gentlemen from issues of ETC would still disagree with me. They were like, "You've got to bring in the gospel. It's not true preaching." I'm going to preach the text, and if the text is law, you're getting law, and if it's gospel, it's gospel. Now, sometimes the text will be very much law, like in Jeremiah, law, law, law. Sometimes I have to bring in the gospel because. All you get, there's no hope anywhere in Jeremiah. There's every once in a while we'll see the gospel breakthrough. So sometimes I will, but I think for the most part, what I try to do, uh, for the most part, what I try to do is just let the text speak for itself is what I try to do. But it just shows you that this art of proper distinction of law and gospel is very complicated, very difficult. No one's ever truly going to master it. And we're, and we will, at times be in disagreement with, well, I don't know, are you properly distinguishing law and gospel? And I think we have to raise those questions. And then there's times people are just clearly not doing a proper distinction, obliterating law and gospel, and their gospel is, well, it's, an, it's, it's the law masquerading as gospel, and that is where you should become greatly concerned. He does list that Oziander as one who certainly learned to commingle law and gospel and did so in a very damaging way to the church, and I have no question or quarrel with Walter on that one. And he moves on then to talk about how important it is that the preacher be well-versed in the art of how to minister to each in season exactly what it is that he needs. Is, is this the time to serve up law, or is this the time to serve up gospel? 
he's talking to these young men. He's like, I want you to be able to preach in such a way that when you're preaching, the people hearing you feel it. They go, he means me. He's painted the hypocrite exactly as I am. Or again, maybe the pastor described in person, a person who is afflicted with temptation so plainly, the actual victim of a temptation has to admit, man, that is my condition. He nailed it. The penitent person must soon feel while listening to this pastor, that comfort's meant for me. I meant to appropriate it. The alarmed soul must be led to think, oh, this is a sweet message. This is for me. So the impenitent, too, the person who is happy with their sin and wants to keep on in it, must be able to acknowledge, man, this preacher has painted my exact portrait. So over and over again, he just urges his students to actually be careful in how they preach in such a way that they make sure that the tag on the law has to be to any secure sinner and the tag on the gospel to any terrified and alarmed sinner. What passages, with a few minutes here, what passages does Walther appeal to here? Well, uh, let me go back and see if I can pull up the first passage that he does. is from Luke 12. The statement there in verse 42 to 44, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing of a truth. I say unto you, he will make him ruler over all that he has. So dishing out the right food to the right person. That's the burden of what we were just running through. And this is the same thing that uh, we hear in Timothy about rightly dividing the word of truth, splitting the, the word in such a way that the law is able to strike terror into the hearts of those who are impenitent. And on the other hand, that the gospel is able to comfort those who have been terrified by the recognition of how much they lack the righteousness of God. He kind of wraps up that entire section with a comment from Luther on Galatians 2. Let anyone who knows well how to distinguish the law from the gospel thank our Lord God, for he can easily pass for a theologian. In my tribulations, I did not, alas, understand this as well as I should have. I love that. There's humility there in Luther. He's saying, when I was going through my hard times, I mean, think about when you when you set yourself against the entire uh, visible church of your day, how how terrifying that must have been. And remember the, the, the terror that Satan always struck in his heart was, are you alone, right? Can this possibly be? And, and he was just trying to teach what the word of God says and to cling to it no matter how much it contradicted human reason. And that is exactly what Walter's trying to encourage his students to do here. Let the law loose. I remember Corby always said, Dr. Corby, great teacher in Lutheranism in the 20th century, he said, you don't have to yell the law. You take it off the leash and you say, kill boy. <laughs> and off it goes. It does the job. So with the preaching of the law, we need to be able to let it do its killing job by speaking it straightforwardly without in any way curbing it, trying to mitigate it by the gospel. And then the gospel can raise the dead that the law has killed. Next time, with about a minute here, we're going to move on in time to Thesis 4, where he says, understanding how to distinguish law and gospel provides wonderful insight for understanding all of Holy Scripture. Without it, Scripture remains a sealed book. What would you say with about a minute of preview? 
Yeah, I think it's really hard for people to get the Bible if they don't get this distinction. Otherwise, and Walter's going to point this out, you've got nothing but a, it sounds like a mass of contradictions in the scripture. If you would enter life, go sell everything you have or be perfect. I mean, he goes down the line giving all the law passages, but then he points out those are passages of the law. There's an entirely different, another word that's contained in the scripture. And he points to the passages of gospel proclaiming to us the joys of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that we have only to believe and receive. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamill, Illinois. He formerly served as director of worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He hosts the daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study produced by Lutheran Public Radio called The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and he's author of the books Celebrating the Saints, Thank, Praise, Serve, and Obey, and See My Savior's Hands. These books are published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Will, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. And there you have it. That concludes that segment. I would say this. This is very important, and you should write this down. When you do not have a proper distinction between law and gospel, if that proper distinction between law and gospel is obliterated, you end up with law masquerading as gospel, and that is no true gospel. Also, if you do not understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, The Bible becomes a convoluted and contradictory mess that you will jump through hoops and bend over backwards to try to make sense. You will convince yourself it will make sense, but the only way for it to truly make sense is to understand those are law passages and these are gospel passages. The law passages have a specific purpose in mind and the gospel passages have a specific purpose. And if you don't understand that, you'll take these law passages and what well, like Matthew 7:21 and you'll start playing weird games with them, modifying them, not taking away the severity of them, doing so, convincing yourself you can do them instead of allowing them to do what they're supposed to do, condemn you, expose your sin and and well there your only hope then is the gospel passages. But if you don't have that distinction, the Bible, you're, I'm sorry, your theology has been convoluted and confused. You end up either with a, with a law masquerading as a gospel, so you have a poisoned, corrupt gospel, and, or you end up with a Bible that you just twist and turn to try to make it make sense because you don't truly understand the right way to understand it, which is the proper distinction between law and gospel. All right. I want you to, to work on that Matthew seven twenty one detector test today. See, talk to people. Let me know what you find. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right. My grocery order has arrived at my front door. It's 757 degrees here in West Texas, meaning all the food that needs to be cooked is probably already cooked and everything that needs to be frozen is probably already melted. So probably the order is totally destroyed, but I couldn't just stop a live broadcast in the middle. So I'm going to run downstairs and try to get everything and see what can be salvaged, see what can. But, you know, the law destroys you, melts you, kills you, 
and hope and resurrection is in the gospel. See, I, I'll try to find some way to use it as an illustration. All right. Thanks for listening. Email me today, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back on the air sometime today. Thanks for listening. God bless.